Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barard. I'm your host, Michelle Barard, founder and CEO of Michelle Barard LLC and Urban Book Editor. And I'm very happy to share this hour with you, where we examine all those places where spirit meets life and the joys and challenges that may bring. You guys know I like to start by thanking Ms. Beverly Black and Tribe Family Channel for helping me create this space for us. Tribe Family Channel is home to an assortment of thought-provoking shows exploring life, spirit, business, and culture, including The Woman at the Well, hosted by Ms. Beverly Black herself. Somewhere in the Middle was born on Tribe Family Channel. And though we have grown onto our own platform, we are ever grateful and loyal to our roots. To paraphrase an African proverb, we are here only because we stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. I wanna say thank you to my guest on the April 15, 2022 show, the founder of Get Payroll, Charles Reed. You can connect with Charles on social media under the handle Get Payroll, and you can find his book at thepayrollbook.com. If you missed that show, make sure you listen to the replay. You can find our complete show archives, including the April 15, 2022 show at the somewhere in the middle podcast.com. I also want to shout out Bruce George of the Genius is Common movement, which encourages all of us to embrace our inner genius and share it with the world. This is a really important message, and I hope you guys will share it with the youth. But it's not just for the youth. Sometimes we adults need to be reminded that the world needs our genius. Learn more about the Genius is Common movement at www.geniusiscommon.com. Now, this month's guest is a delight and an inspiration. Ra Ariel is a 17-year-old British Nepalese writer and the author of Encapsulated Emotions. She loves writing poetry and is inspired by the likes of classical poets such as Emily Dickinson. She aims to raise awareness of and project marginalized voices through her writing. So I'd like to welcome Ra Ariel to Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Berard. Ra, thank you so much for being on the show. Hi, Michelle. Of course, it's my pleasure. Well, I'm really excited to have you on the show because, well, you're a young person. Um, I know you probably, I, I, I expect you probably get tired of people saying, you're so young, but you're <laughs> a young person. Uh, you're a poet, and that's really dear to my heart. Poetry is dear to my heart. So I would, I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I usually start my interviews with two questions. Okay. So if you're ready. Yeah, I'm ready. Ra Ariel, who are you and how did you become who you are today? Right, that's a good question. Well, um, as, as you've mentioned, I'm a young poet. I'm 17 years old. I live in Wales with my family. Um, and I started writing poetry and it helped me become who I am. It's such an integral part of my life. I think it was from the, the first lockdown when COVID hit in the world was just all silence that I found this kind of festering voice within me. And I was like, you know what, I should write some of this down. Even though my views don't seem that significant to me, reaching out and connecting with other people, it might, you know, might make people feel less lonely in this time of complete isolation. So it was really the COVID-19 pandemic that triggered um, me discovering such a huge part of myself. And yeah, now I've got a book that came out last Wednesday and it's all just happened really quickly, to be honest. <laughs> That's amazing. So you talked about a couple of things. You talked about, of course, the pandemic. Yeah. Um, where were you locked down? 
Um, when the lockdown hit, I was right here at home. So in South Wales, we had, you know, the last week of school. I just finished year 11. Um, well, it was the middle of March, so not really, but it'd been a really disruptive year. We, we kind of knew that school was going to be finishing soon. So we had all of the sad farewells and byes. Some of my friends went off to college. So um, it was tough, but we had, you know, all the goodbye photographs and stuff. But yeah, I was right here in Wales. And so you're in Wales, you're there with your family, yeah. locked down. And how did you decide to start writing? What happened? Was there a trigger? Was there something that, you know, just made you pick up the pen and just start yeah. writing this book? Well, um, the one thing we were allowed to do in lockdown was go out for daily walks. I think it was restricted to about one a day. And so me and my family, we'd just go outside, go to the park or something. And just being around nature and really feeling connected to nature after so long, you know, even before, if I'd be going uh, for a walk with my family, it'd be, oh, I've got to do homework when I've got back, I've got deadlines, I've got an exam next week. And all of that just slowly melted away. It was just me and nature. And I feel like nature is such a big element in my writing because it is kind of what triggered my writing to begin with. It's just like the foundations of what my poetry was built on. It was the COVID-19 pandemic and finally be, being able to take a step back and just, you know, just breathe, breathe. So you said nature is, has always been a part of your writing. Yeah. Definitely. Give me an example of something that you found particularly inspiring in nature. Okay. Um, let me have a quick flick through here. So here's one of them. Uh, one of the poems in the book is called Melancholy Moon, Do You Cry Too? And in this poem, I discover how the moon it's so isolated away from us and yet it's kind of a figure of you know wisdom and beauty and I found that really interesting so I wanted to incorporate that in the piece and the poem explores actually I linked it with a part of feminism you know like toxic masculinity how boys can cry too and how they have emotions and even though society tells them you know sometimes it's not okay you know toughen up act like a man how it is okay to show the sensitive part of yourself and so yeah I like to connect kind of nature and just peacefulness with something that's really significant in society today. I think that's kind of a poignant um, part of my work, how I like to connect two absolutely completely unattached things and find a way to mold them together and for them to come together and have a completely new meaning. Well, would you be willing to read yeah, that poem for us? Let me just find it. Okay. Melancholy Moon, do you cry too? Beneath his glowing presence is a failing skeleton. Under his omnius stare is a lifeless soul. His crescent shadow reminds him that he's not whole. A boy whose, whose eyes are battered and barren, he too tosses and turns. He too holds the capability to feel blue. A boy watches the moon, his, masculin his masculinity strung out towards the stars. He says, do you cry too? Mm. So why did you decide to bring in feminism in particular and, and, and really the concept of men, boys being able to cry? Why did you tie those two things together with this concept of the moon? And yeah, I, I completely understand why you'd ask that because you know, as a young girl, you wouldn't really think that I'd been affected by that sort of experience, but as we were home and, you know, what would you do? We'd all just turn to our phones, log into social media. There were lots of stories emerging about how just humanity in general, we're finding it really difficult to cope. 
-hmm. And I just thought, well, even if they're just showing mostly, you know, mothers struggling with their children or just young students um, living in an uncertain times, I was like, there is kind of underrepresented groups within this as well. And I just turned towards, you know, men and boys who are maybe head of the house or have been told, okay, you need to work this out when really it's, it's a blameless situation. And I just wanted to write this for them to realize that they can take a step back and they can let their emotions out as well. So who have been big influences in your life in terms of your writing? Well, um, in the part of um, South Wales that I live in, actually, there was a really famous poet called the Dylan Thomas. I don't know if you heard of him, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. he grew up and um, one of the parks that he grew up and played in for most of his childhood was the same as mine. So I feel like we hold that kind of connection, even though, you know, generations ago, he's sadly de dead now. But here I am, a new poet, you know, in his park, basically. And the birthplace of Dylan Thomas is um, a little little community called Uplands. And that's also where I was born. So just having always his poetry in the backdrop of my life, even in childhood, when I didn't know I wanted to write poetry, it's just a kind of familiar thing that I cling on to. It's like a kind of constant thing that's always been in my life. And now I can finally acknowledge it and enjoy his poetry as well. So did you study a lot of poetry in school or did your parents read poetry to you? How did you get interested in poetry in particular? Right, okay. Well, uh, one of my friends had lent me a poetry book over the holidays just before uh, lockdown started. So I found that even, uh, it was a Rupi Kaur book actually. She, she uses uh, tiny micro poems and they're quite, I find they're quite vaguely um, like described. They have lots of phrases that just anyone can cling on to and find their own take and own meaning on it. It makes mm -hmm. you draw out your own memories. And I really admired that. I actually hadn't studied poetry, so I didn't know anything about, you know, like form, structure, different metric systems. I didn't know any of that. I'm studying English now and I've now, um, we've been studying some classical poets. So I do know about that now. But before, no, I only had maybe one one poetry book to refer to and I didn't even own that, so I couldn't flick back through it. So I was just finding my own feet in the most natural way possible. So what do you consider to be the most natural way possible to find your feet? If you have no training in poetry, no formal education in that area, how mm -hmm. did you find your feet? Well, um, one of the main ways that I got motivated to keep writing poetry was I started uh, an Instagram account, a poetry Instagram account called Encapsulated Emotions, same title as my book. And on there, I'd follow a vast a range of different writers. And each poet has, you know, a kind of different signature thing. Like I said, I like to connect my poems to nature. And just glancing at those, you know, scrolling through, it helped me absorb different like techniques and thoughts mm -hmm. and also messages, like I said, that I wanted to implement into my work. So I think you just need to be open to the world. Like there's poetry everywhere. As I said, I was connecting with it just from leaving the house and going on walks, but also I think social media was an integral part of my development as a writer. So you mentioned social media, you mentioned that you follow different poets. Who's your favorite poet that you follow? Oh, that's really tough. Mm. I think my favorite poet that I follow is probably one of my friends. Her name's Rosie. She doesn't post anything on Instagram as such, but she has a few other platforms and she shares her work with me. And she was actually writing poetry before me and I'd read her pieces. So yeah, she's a very good poet and I'm inspired by her. That's awesome. So what's your writing process? 
how do you, I mean, do you get up every day and say, I'm going to write one poem, whether it's good, mm -hmm. bad, or otherwise, or yeah. what's your process? All of that kind of structure would probably be really admirable and it would be the kind of thing that maybe listeners would expect from me if they were seeing me as a role model, but that is absolutely possibly the opposite thing of what I do. I try not to pressure myself into that kind of structure. So sometimes, as since we're back in, into real life school now, um, I won't, I simply just won't have time or I won't feel like I need a breather. I'll just keep working through the week and then maybe on a weekend I will sit myself down and I will say, okay, it's your time to do what you do best now. You can have some poetry. And then within that hour, I maybe will have written six or seven poems. So yeah. I don't really like structure it like a poem a day, but mm -hmm. I kind of collect up good thoughts. I, I've actually spread out a really big piece of paper on my desk and I just jot stuff down straight onto my desk. It's kind of like a scrapbook. So mm -hmm. I'll do that throughout the week. And then just looking down at my desk and up on my laptop, I will just type away. That's my technique. Okay, that's a neat concept. So you said mm -hmm. you, you spread out a large piece of paper on your desk, you jot yeah. notes throughout the week. So that's like, you know, writers writing on napkins and stuffing yeah. them in their pockets and I things like that. Vision of it. Yeah. yeah. And then you come back to your desk on the weekends. And this is because you're back in school, right? Yeah. Some of the summer holidays are going to start at the end of this week, actually. So next week onwards, I'll be a lot freer. And I feel like I'll be producing a lot more poetry as well through the summer. Okay, so tell me about this book. Mm -hmm. How did you come up with the idea for this particular book? And what was the process like for you to get this published? Okay, so first off, the book, as I've said, it's called Encapsulated Emotions. And if anyone does have a little research and look at the cover, you'll see that it's a, it's a very striking, memorable figure of a girl who's mm -hmm. covered in flowers. And there, there you have it straight off the connotations of nature. Um, something really special about this book is that my best friend illustrated it. So she did the cover design and throughout the book as well, you'll see little illustrations to match each poem. And she did all of these. So it's almost, it's half of my heart and passion and it's the other half of her heart and passion. So just holding it, it feels like you just have the meltings of two souls. It's really, really special. The concept of the book is that it is a symbolic time capsule. So there's three chapters, collection, preservation, and decay. And it reflects how, as human beings, similar to time capsules, we'll collect our emotions, you know, store them away, they'll be preserved for a while, and then ultimately they'll die away and decay. And I just thought that that was such a beautiful but kind of sad concept, and I wanted to cling to it, and so I incorporated it into the journey of my book. Uh, as for publishing, I was absolutely insanely lucky I don't think I've heard any other author or writer say this but uh the first publishers I went to are the ones that accepted my manuscript and wanted to publish me so I'm incredibly grateful for that but it wasn't too much of a long battle or fight I sent them a few sample poems and then when when they liked that I sent them the manuscript and then they gave me a contract it was quite smooth sailing to be honest that's beautiful so well, then let's back up. I, I like to walk people through the process process, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. you researched some publishers. Yeah. Well, what did that, what, or what did you do? How did you come, how did you how find did your publisher? It's an absolute, like the actual story is so by chance, it's almost unbelievable. What I actually went to do was one of my friends had been published in a 
a Gen Z like teenage magazine. Mm -hmm. So I was just there typing away, looking at Gen Z, Gen Z publishing, Gen Z magazine, whatever, to try and find her work online. But I actually stumbled across Gen Z publishing and I had a look on their website and I saw that they accepted um, manuscripts from young authors. They had a very big, one of their missions was um, to have diverse authors. They didn't mind if you were young, if you were unagented, if you didn't have you know, previous experience in the publishing industry. And I just thought, what have I got to lose? I will send them a few poems. And so I sent them across, I think it was 12 sample poems. And then within six weeks, I had a response saying, we're interested. So it's absolutely by chance. I would love to tell you that, you know, it's a painstaking process that I've got sheets of research, but it was just so by chance is almost unbelievable. It's serendipity. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> so you found your publisher, they sent you a contract. You, what did you do then? Did you like give it to your parents and say, hey, look this over with me? Yeah. Did you go to an well, attorney? Um, what, what process did you- We're going into detail here. There was actually a little uh, misunderstanding because mm -hmm. of, I think, the tone of my poetry and as, as we've discussed, the kind of things that I talk about, like social injustices, you know, feminism, different movements that mm -hmm. I've perceived as a teenager. They actually assumed that I was an adult. I think they thought I was kind of like a woman in her 40s or something. <laughs> so when they sent it over, they were like, they sent me like an adult's contract and it was something like, I hereby sign that I'm over the age of 18. And I was 16 at the time. So I emailed them back like, sorry, I think you might've got this wrong. I'm actually 16 years old. And then they were like, oh, sorry, sorry. Here's, a, um, here's another copy of the um, contract, but it has a part for your dad to sign or your mom as well. So I gave that to my parents, we were all very, very happy. But uh, my dad was a little bit skeptical because obviously we were new to this publishing industry. We didn't know a single thing. So he was wondering, you know, do we need to get a lawyer to check this over? Do you need to, like, do we have to get you an, a literary agent or an editor or just someone to be there, like a professional to support you? But um, we just decided to read it over ourselves. And in the end, everything was absolutely perfect. You know, it was as legit as possible. And then we signed it. and the editing process started. That's beautiful. So you had one, two, three, how many editors did you have? Because often with publishing companies, you'll have a primary editor yeah. who works directly with you. And then they have other editors that focus on particular areas. Yeah. How did that work for your book? Um, well, at first, I think there were three people who were editing my book and having a look over. Because as I've said, there's the different... Um, like chapters of my book, the different mm -hmm. collection, parts of the collections, they're all quite, um, like they stand alone, they're significant and they have their own themes. So preservation, I'm oh, sorry, collection is more like, you know, grounding yourself. It's kind of more happy and cheery. It's about acceptance. Preservation mm -hmm. is about, this. it's got a kind of a sad tone of melancholia. And I, most of my injustices and my social movement pieces are in uh, preservation and decay will be, you know, the loss of relationships or grief or like cultural um, identity kind of poems. So we had to, first of all, sort them. We had to ask ourselves, what do these three words, collection, preservation and decay actually mean? And how can we use that to categorize the poems? So yeah, at first, because it was such a big um, challenge really. And it's so subjective, you know, even if I'm like, oh, I think this should be in collection for me, other people might disagree. So we had to try and do it as fairly as possible so that the readers could kind of understand our reasoning. So mm -hmm. at first there were three editors and then that kind of melted away uh, when the manuscript was more finite and more developed 
and then I just had one and her name is Emily and she's amazing. <laughs> so then Emily took your book from that editing stage to layout and that's where you started yeah. working with your friend to get the cover design to get the yeah. illustrations that go how did that process work? Um, so I think, uh, there was, I don't know her exact title, but there was a woman called Stephanie who was dealing with the process of cover designs and illustrations. And so I just pitched to them, like, I don't know if you're going to say yes to this. I have a friend. She's also 16. Like me. She loves doing art. She's just completed her art GCSE. She got an A star. She's very, very good and talented. Do you mind giving her a shot and maybe putting her illustrations in the book? And just like when I sent them my manuscript in the first place, I wasn't expecting much, you know, because they're professional publishers. I was like, maybe, maybe they need professionalism. But after Tyrion sent over her portfolio and they saw just, you know, the pure talent that she has and the passion that she has to become an artist and just how her work, it truly just speaks for itself. You know, it's absolutely flawless and so refined. I mean, I think if someone looked at her illustrations as well, they wouldn't expect to see a teenager at all. They'd expect to see someone who's, you know, studied it and has maybe even got a degree in art and is like with me, middle-aged or something, but we're not. <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you guys went through the layout process, decided, <laughs> you decided where all the poems were going to go. You got everything edited. You got the illustrations put together. Yeah. What did it feel like? First of all, how long did it take? How long did, you, did the process take start to finish? <laughs> Start to finish, I think I sent my first few poems uh, in around May or June time. And then this book got released a year later in July. 7th of July was the release date. So it took just over a year for the whole process to be finalized and for this to finally come out. It and felt, honestly, it felt really exhilarating and exciting. We just had the 7th of July drilled into our minds. Like that is the light at the end of the tunnel. That is when we can hold our creations and it just kept us going honestly we every time we met up we'd be like we have a book together this is so crazy you know it's not the mundane typical things teenagers talk about but me and my friendship group were just buzzing with the words encapsulated emotions that's beautiful and I, I can imagine it must have been exciting for your parents too yeah it was they they're so so proud of me especially because um we're originally from Nepal some of um you know, my uncles, my aunts, my grandparents, they've never even been to university. They haven't had the opportunities to build up, you know, and find things like this. So just explaining to my grandparents back home, it's been such an experience to say that um, my dad, who grew up in a, you know, a rural urban village and then moved here and then had me, it's just like stepping up higher and higher. My dad sometimes says to me, like, you are honestly like standing on the shoulders of so many of your ancestors and just mm -hmm. rising up. And yeah, that's really touching for me. And making them very proud. Yeah, they are very, very proud. I've actually got a poem in here actually about my grandmother. It's called Goodbye Grandmother. And it just explores how even though we're here and they're there, like we are unified, but underneath that, there's always the conflict of like, you know, I miss you. I don't spend as much time with you as, you know, my friends spend with their grandparents. There's always a, an element of like, you know, unjustism and it's just like unfair that I don't get to be with them as much as I'd like to. Mm -hmm. But then in the end, this is why it's so that I, me and my sister have the opportunities to be who we want to be and to achieve our goals. So I do appreciate that. Would you mind sharing that poem with us? Oh, yeah, of course, I've got it right here. So it's titled Goodbye Grandmother. 
I clutched her crumpled hands and shook my head. My tongue stumbled, start stumbled through a goodbye in a language that's faded, like newsprint in the sun. When will I return to this country, to my home? Grandmother, I honestly don't remember your first name. You know me as the London one, the one who's not the same. I stand out of this tradition like a mirror that won't reflect. This relationship is complex. Your words are a stutter. Your days are numbered. I want to ask, I want to say, have you ever been out of the country? Have you ever been on the train? I bet you imagine us flying away every time with heavy eyes, but this is the price we pay. That's beautiful. You say something interesting in the poem. You said, the one who is not the same. How does that change things when you leave your home country to yeah. go to Europe or the United States or any place else like that? How does that change things from the family's perspective that stays behind? Yeah, it definitely, there definitely is a big uh, a change in family dynamic. Um, my dad moved here when he was really young. I think he was about 11. So even, you know, my dad's childhood, they didn't get to see all of that possibly as much as they would have liked to. And then he went back to Nepal and got married to my mom. And then they came here and had me and my sister. So there definitely is a difference. And especially because we've got such a big family. My parents both have so many siblings. We've got tons of cousins. Um, when we go, it's almost like a, you know, a surprise, a treat for them when really it should just be normality. So even though obviously it's nice, you know, getting the special treatment, getting all the special food and stuff like that. It, there is definitely a bittersweet side to it where it's like, this is where we belong. You know, this is our home. We shouldn't have to leave and then come back and be treated like this. We should mm -hmm. just be treated in a normal way because, you know, you are our flesh and blood and bones. You are our family. But so when you go home, you're treated as, you know, honored guests, visitors, yeah. Yeah, that something kind like of that. So what does that mean in terms of, like, you mentioned the fading language? Yeah. What, what wow. does that mean in terms of communication? What does that mean in terms of the way that, um, the way that you interact? Mm -hmm. Well, um, when I was born, my first language actually was Nepali. So I was absolutely fluent in it. I preferred it to English. And then when I started going to school, my Nepali started going down and my English started going up. And um, I think before when I was little, everyone in my house spoke Nepali, so my parents would both speak it and so would I. And then when I started going to school and I was about three or four, then me and my dad slowly turned to speaking English. My mom, adamant as ever, she always speaks Nepali in the house. But now it's three against one, you know. When Anna was born, she's always just been brought up speaking English. So I think for me, Nepali isn't so bad. After I'm in Nepal for a few weeks, it comes back to me, you know. You know, like an old friend, a visitor, it does come back. And then when I come here, though, I find within days I will forget it again and it will be difficult. But for my sister, it's the most difficult because she understands it completely. Any, anything anyone says, she can understand fully. But when she speaks it, uh, she, she's worse than me. <laughs> so well, it is yes. So English is technically her first language. Yeah, English is her first language, whereas... Uh, my parents and my first language is Nepali. But the thing is, I can't switch between them very quickly. If we're in Nepal, then I'm very good at Nepali because obviously it's the culture, it's the language that surrounds you. Everyone's speaking it, you get used to it, but um, I'm very bad speaking to relatives on the phone and things like that. <laughs> I, can well, I, bet, I, bet, 
I bet they think it's cute though. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Especially when, because as you mentioned at the beginning, I've got a very kind of pronounced, unique accent. And when I try to speak Nepali and that is definitely interesting. <laughs> so they call you, does, how valid is that idea that your grandmother sees you as the London one? Are you guys the only ones who've left home or what's the, why would that be kind of a thought? Yeah, well, um, since it's so far away, I don't think any of them actually realize. I think it's the same with some of my friends who are from India and stuff. They Mm -hmm. don't actually get that Wales is like its own country. They just see the UK as, you know, England and London. So we just say, yeah, we're from London. That's that's (laughs) yours. That was kind of a reference to that about how we're so far away. It doesn't even really matter to them, like where exactly we are. It's just London, you know? Mm -hmm. so there's definitely that and well it's just so tough being away from them for long extended periods of time and seeing my friends going up to visit their grandparents every weekend well not with the pandemic but usually Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of been a constant reminder through mine and my sister's childhood that our family are miles and miles away they're like a 16 hour flight away whereas other people will be you know next door to their grandparents so it's difficult to accept but also we appreciate the chance that we've been given I'm sure many of my cousins would swap out their lives to mine. So I'm not ungrateful. Definitely not. So is your, is your poor family, your uh, nuclear family, the only one of your family that's left Nepal? Or are you just the main ones in Wales? Um, I think some of my cousins have, have gone to like America or Australia to study and then they've lived there and rooted themselves there. But I think because... We're the closest ones to my grandparents because obviously my dad is my grandma's son. It's mm-hmm. like a lot harder hitting than, you know, like a grandchild leaving and going away. Mm-hmm. And because when we come home, we see my mom's side of the family as well. We were just kind of the first ones to leave and make that step, which makes oh, it okay. the hardest because we've grown the furthest apart, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned your dad came here at 11. yeah. How did that come about? Well, he got a scholarship with a, I think they were a charity called Pestalozzi. So they, they went around the world looking for children from, you know, underprivileged, poor backgrounds to bring them to the UK and give them an education here and give them opportunities to learn how to become, you know, good citizens and good farmers because most of them were from agricultural backgrounds. And then the plan was to, after they were, I think, 18 or 19, after they've completed university, to send them back to their country so that they could, uh, you know, prosper and build businesses there. Mm-hmm. However, as you've guessed, my dad didn't go back. He stayed here and he pursued a career in civil engineering. So he's a civil wow. engineer. Yeah. That's amazing. So my dad himself, he made a really big step from being, you know, a poor boy living in a village to being having a white-collar job over here in the UK. But, I mean... I'm just thinking the resilience that was necessary at 11 years old to leave home, admittedly yeah, to go to school. Really yeah. yeah. I do ask him about it. Um, and, you know, he hated the food. He hated the weather. Uh, <laughs> there was a lot of things that didn't agree with him at first. But, I mean, it must have grown on him because here we are. He wouldn't even move to the, the next city over. He absolutely loves where we live. We're surrounded by beaches and nature. It's, it's a really nice place. That's beautiful. So you've published your first book. Yeah. When can we expect the second book? Ooh, well, I don't know. I have sent my publishers a proposal for the second. So that is definitely in the works. I hope that Terry will illustrate it again because 
So just something about her work that complements mine so deeply. I can't imagine doing another book without her. So yeah, hopefully, I don't know, maybe a year or 18 months from now, we'll have to see. That's beautiful. And so where you said you were finishing grade 11. Yeah. So I'm assuming so it's was, like, a, like high school. Um, I'm finishing year 12 here. So I'm going on to my last year of like college before university. Okay. So that's where I want to make sure that I understand because we call that high school here. So you're yeah. about to go, you would be going to co- what we call college at when you say university, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so much. Y'all are so fancy in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all have such fancy ways of saying everything. So you're going to be starting your first year of university next year uh yeah next September not this September yeah that's amazing and you will already have two books under your belt yeah let's hope so (laughs) (laughs) have you given thought to what you're going to study when you go to university yeah um I think it's pretty much completely set in stone now I'm definitely going to do English I'm thinking an English and creative writing degree I think that's you know my calling looking forward to that That's beautiful. Well, we are looking forward to hearing more of your poetry and seeing more and more books and much success for you. Thank you. So tell everybody where they can connect with you and where they can buy your book. Okay. Well, um, as I said, I have an Instagram account. That's kind of my main point of contact. If you want to ask me any questions, then you can follow me at Encapsulated Emotions um, on Instagram. As for purchasing the book, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it both paperback and ebook. It's available in both formats. Awesome. All I can say, Rise, I'm so impressed with you, so amazed, and so thrilled to have had you on the show. Thank you so much for being on Somewhere in the Middle with Michelle Barad. Thank you. It's been great. Well, that's this month's show, guys. You can reach out to me online at urbanbookeditor.com or michellebarard.com. You can also find me on Facebook and Instagram as Urban Book Editor. Send me a note. I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to send in some topics you'd like us to cover on the show. Make sure you tune into the show on June 17th when my guest will be executive leadership coach Emily Sander. You can find us once a month on Fridays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Mountain, 7 p.m. Central, and 8 p.m. Eastern Time at the Somewhere in the Middle Podcast.com. Let's continue the conversation. You guys be good, stay mindful, and remain prayerful. Peace and blessings, y'all.